you never know. You never know when some seemingly insignificant event occurs and alters the entire direction of your life, affecting the rest of your life. Events like this can happen anywhere, anytime, and arrive without warning when you least expect it. But the ripple effects can be astounding if you can simply show up, be open to change, pay attention, and stay out of the results. It's what I like to call the showing up business, and business is good. Welcome, and hi, my name is Matt. showing up business is simply the concept that showing up and staying out of the results is something I can control. The results business is somebody else's business, like God or the universe or just old-fashioned destiny or whatever your personal beliefs are. But in a world that often feels out of control, simply showing up has proven to be the first ingredient to all life-altering events for me. So let me share one such event that changed my whole life. A powerful, unforeseen event that occurred at an unlikely time in an unlikely place. This is the story of how I became a drummer one fateful night and my first recording session that happened a week later. Now, I've always felt that I understood the language of music. I just had a sense of what it was doing and why, even as a child. I believe that the best way I can describe music is, it's what feelings sound like. And as a shy, sensitive kid, I had a complex array of feelings. But I never dreamed I could play music, because I had no musical mentors. Nobody in my family was a musician and none of my friends were musicians. But I knew I had it in me. I remember my little brother getting a toy drum set for Christmas when we were kids. It had the Muppets on the bass drum. I remember sitting behind it and playing along with the radio. The song was Earth, Wind and Fire's Serpentine Fire. Suddenly, I felt connected to the music in a new way. For the first time, I was inside the music, instead of just listening from the outside. By the time the song had finished, I had destroyed my little brother's toy drum. But a seed was planted. Also, not unlike the movie Almost Famous, where the little boy has left his big sister's record collection, 
I had a cool uncle who left me his. It was a treasure of all the great music from the 70s. One by one, I would play these records while staring at and studying these album covers and their artwork. I remember not knowing how to pronounce Leonard Skinnerd. I didn't know if it was Lineard, Skynard. But I would spend hours consuming and digesting the music they contained. Right around that same time, I started hanging out with the quote-unquote bad kids, misfits, and juvenile delinquents in my neighborhood. These kids drank, took drugs, fought, broke into houses, stole cars, etc. And I found them fascinating. Most of them were older than me and turned me on to even more music that I was yet unaware of. I remember really connecting with the sound of Black Sabbath. Their sound was so heavy and demonic, yet their music and lyrics contain a sadness that I also shared and connected with. I would spend countless hours listening to Black Sabbath while smoking pot and thinking about the secrets and the symptoms of the universe. Music was my friend, and Black Sabbath was one of my best friends. Along with the magical sounds of Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, The Beatles, Van Halen, ACDC, Aerosmith, and others, these new sounds were a perfect pubescent progression from the music I was raised with. From my mama's collection of 45s that contained music from Motown artists, Bill Spector girl groups, Chubby Checker, and of course the Beatles. And to my dad's records of various jazz artists, folk music, Simon and Garfunkel. heavier and more guitar driven and I knew I had to try to make my own. I had a paper route at the time and instead of spending my wages on candy I started saving for an electric guitar. Eventually I had enough to buy a shitty electric guitar made by a company called K and a shitty little plastic guitar amplifier. I was off and running in my bedroom trying to recreate these sounds I was into. But again, I had no mentors. I was just hammering away at power chords. But it felt good. Probably similar to making a home run, basket, or touchdown, but more badass. But again, none of my friends were musicians. So it was a lone bedroom activity. Just me under the posters on my wall of my heroes, playing shitty power chords and smoking weed. And to this day, I'm happy to report I'm still a shitty guitar player, but I love it. 
right around this time, my friendships with the neighborhood juvenile delinquents was starting to take its toll on me. I was failing all my classes at school and barely even going except to sell pot in the smoking courtyard and in the woods behind the school. I was also starting to get arrested for various petty crimes, like selling pot, stealing cars, shoplifting, and breaking into houses to name a few. And I found my feelings of anger, alienation, and frustration started manifesting violently in fights with other kids. I was headed for real trouble already, and I was only 15 years old. My dad didn't know what to do with me and suggested I join the army when I was old enough, but my mom knew that I wouldn't fare well. She knew I was intelligent, she'd had me tested, and I had extremely high IQ scores, but somehow I was failing every subject at school. Thank God she loved me enough and had the foresight and intuition to search for boarding schools that would take me. She and I had visited a few and finally settled on a little hippie boarding school in Stowe, Vermont, located at the foot of Mount Mansfield. It had a total of 80 students at best in the entire high school. But I was in the woods and I loved it. The school was very much built around an outdoorsman lifestyle. Lots of hiking, camping, climbing, snowshoeing, etc. These were activities I naturally excelled at. I also excelled at perfecting my party skills of drinking and taking drugs, but in a safer environment, away from law enforcement. Actually, I think at the time, the whole town of Stowe, Vermont had a total of four police officers. And since I didn't know how to drive yet, I was of little concern to them. The curriculum of the school was also loose and up for interpretation. I remember getting social studies credit for going to Grateful Dead shows and writing a report about it. I got an English credit for the time me and my roommate wrote an underground newspaper we named The Overthrow. We broke into the school offices at night and made 100 copies. The next morning, every dorm room and classroom had a copy of The Overthrow slipped under their door. It was a crude gossip paper telling stories and complaining about certain teachers and school policies. We even drew comics depicting students and teachers in it. Nobody knew who wrote it since we created it anonymously, but when the school English teacher read it, she offered an English credit to whoever confessed. These are examples of the kind of wild place it was, and for 15-year-old me, it was magical. Which leads me to the main story of this episode and a perfect example of the you-never-know concept of a seemingly insignificant event occurring and changing the course of the rest of your life. Something so powerful and profound, it can't be mere chance. It's a feeling of discovering your destiny all by simply showing up and staying out of the results. The story goes that one night I took several hits of acid. It was a beautiful, clear sky, starry night in the Vermont Green Mountains, and I was staring up at the sky. I made the decision to climb up onto the roof of one of the school's buildings to get a better look at the stars. 
As I was laying on my back, connecting the dots of the constellations, I heard music in the distance. Like a siren's call, it drew me closer. I crawled across the roof towards the source. As I approached a window, I could tell it was someone playing guitar and singing Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone in what appeared to be the school's music room. It was a room I'd never visited up till that moment. But the sound of that song, combined with the enhanced mental state I was in, made it impossible for me to resist the urge to pry open the window. Thankfully, it was unlocked. And as I raised the window, the music got louder, almost pulling me into the room. I scrambled my lanky teenage body through the tiny portal and landed behind a set of drums. The other kid never stopped playing the song, and as I was listening, I looked around at my new psychedelic surroundings to discover a well-worn pair of drumsticks resting on the snare drum that was now between my legs. I picked up the sticks and looked sheepishly at the guitar player for a go-ahead signal, but his eyes were closed as he continued to play and sing. So I began to play and accompany him. I can't really explain it, but I just instinctively knew what to do. Playing this drum set was a vast improvement of sounds compared to my little brother's Muppet toy drum set. But like that past childhood moment, I was once again inside the music. Except this time, instead of playing along with the radio, I was actually playing along with a musician in the flesh. This warm feeling came over me, and I felt connected to the world. The only thing I can compare it to was the feeling I used to have as a little boy when I would climb a tall tree until I reached the top. A kind of combination of naive fearlessness mixed with the knowledge that I was doing something dangerous. The two of us played the longest version of Like a Rolling Stone that I'd ever heard. While I explored every texture and nuance I could squeeze out of this collection of noise-making objects that made up this particular drum set. I was in heaven. Somehow, we ended the song and were left speechless. As the guitar player started packing up his gear, he said to me, Hey, we're going to the recording studio next week. You should be our drummer. I laughed and said, thanks, but I'm not a real drummer. I'm just on acid. He replied, well, you're better than our drummer. I said, okay, but I'm going to need more acid. And after a couple more jam sessions in that tiny music room with what was considered the other school musicians, I found myself a week later packing up the drums and loading up the school van to make the journey to a real recording studio located a couple towns away. Little did I know at the time, it would be the first of thousands of times loading a drum set in and out of a van. A tradition I've practiced all around the world. Once we arrived at the studio, we parked the van and entered into what I would later come to consider my church, my temple, my Frankenstein's laboratory. 
A place to raise my personal antenna as high as possible to receive signals of inspiration and instructions and ingredients to add to the musical bouillabaisse we were about to cook up. But unlike my school's music room jam pit, this place was pristine and organized. And it had so many objects I'd never seen before, like mic stands, microphones, dozens of cables and wires, and sound baffles so we could each build our little workspaces inside this big room that was designed to make sounds sound good in order to be captured accurately on reels of two-inch tape. I loaded in the drums and began to set them up. After adjusting everything to my liking, the engineers began surrounding the drums with mic stands. And on those mic stands, put what appeared to be very delicate and expensive microphones that each seemed to have their own mission. Like the story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, you had the Papa Bear microphone on the bass drum, the Mama Bear microphones on the snare drum and various tom-toms, and the Baby Bear microphones to capture the sound of the cymbals, and finally, the Goldilocks microphone across the room to capture the ambience of the whole room. I guess that made me the big bad wolf. Once everything was set up and in place to the engineer's liking, I was asked to sit behind the kit and put on these large headphones that covered my ears. I had never heard my drumming through headphones before. And when the engineer instructed me to one by one hit each drum and cymbal, I heard for the first time what the microphones were hearing while the engineers were behind the glass in its separate room sitting behind a large desk-like console covered with buttons and knobs staring at me. It felt like being a laboratory animal being observed and studied by scientists. Once these engineers slash scientists were happy with what they were hearing, I was free to leave the room. And they would repeat the whole process with the other musicians on their respective instruments. I took this opportunity to go outside with my buddy and get high behind the van. I was way too intimidated and self-conscious to try and play drums sober at that time. So I treated my brain like the EQ on a home stereo. A little treble, a little bass, until my head was in proper shape to create and get weird. Eventually, the engineers were ready and it was time for us to all go in and do what we do. We knew it would be inappropriate for us to do exactly what we normally did, which was to jam freely on a song idea for hours at a time. This was different. It was go time. Our mission was to play three to five minute versions of our song ideas, which meant we had to trim off a lot of fat from our normal sound antics. With the collective input of these seven musicians, all with different tastes and skills, we recorded about six or seven songs. These songs ranged from a blues song about our frustrated teenage libidos, a funk song about a cat that got into a cocaine stash, a pretty ballad, a psychedelic Grateful Dead-like instrumental, and even a rap song. At the time, Rap music as we know it was just starting to emerge from places like New York City and wasn't yet played on the radio or even sold in record stores. It was an underground genre spreading around through exchanges of cassettes by hand, not unlike the exchanging of dead show live bootleg cassette tapes. 
we had written a rap song called Bamboo D Wactalata, which is what my friends from Washington, D.C. said the drug dealers would bark from the street corners in the hood. True to rap form, we each had alias MC names and would each take a verse for our teenage white boy rap battle. My name was Fozzie, after the character on the Muppets, Fozzie Bear. It was awful, but to this day remains the first recording of male white rappers that I've ever heard. After hours of recording these songs, we all crammed into the control room to listen to what we'd done and begin the arduous process of mixing. We were recording on fat two-inch tape on 16 tracks, and it was the first time of many that I would hear that beautiful garbled sound of tape rewinding. followed by that incredible chunk sound of the tape snapping against the tape heads as the machine began to play. We would then each opine and argue about how we thought it should sound as the engineer twisted knobs and slid sound faders up and down to our liking. We had no idea what we were doing, but that didn't stop us from expressing what we liked and what we thought was shit. Even to this day, after hundreds and hundreds of recording sessions, ranging from albums of an array of bands and artists, movie and TV show scores and soundtracks, TV and radio commercials, and even video game music, I still sit down behind the drums, put on my headphones, and the first thought that pops in my head is, I have no fucking idea what I'm doing. Fortunately for me, my second thought is usually, yeah, Matt, but you've been doing this a long time, so just be yourself and serve the song. I guess some things never change. By the end of the day, we had mixed all the songs and began to tear down and pack up all the gear we'd brought, while the engineer made us all cassette tapes of our music to take back with us. We had succeeded in entering a strange room, rearranging the air molecules with our instruments capturing it and putting it into a product we could take home and replay for years to come for better or worse now in my long musical career i have a deep love in exploring the recording of music as well as performing it live on various stages but they are two very different mediums to me each with their own rituals and processes a live show happens in real time. I hit the drums, make the sounds, and it vanishes in the night. It is an instantaneous connection being made with the listener on a personal level. Music is merely the vehicle to do that. And I love it. It's when I feel like I can breathe fire and do no wrong. On a good night, anyway. But it is fleeting. It demands everything. And before you know it, show's over. But recording is a different animal altogether.
It's more of an analytical process of making art. More like painting. You add some colors and textures, then step back, look at it, then you go back and change it, adding or subtracting as you see fit, until it sounds and feels like the truth. It requires a different headspace entirely, and I love it more than anything in this world. Unlike a live performance, I can really explore ideas with the depth that performing live won't allow. I actually think that these days, I'm paid more for my ideas than my musical reaction to others' ideas than I am my actual playing. I don't play perfectly. I never have. But I don't want to. I'd rather see what I can get away with. My goal is to try and play the wrong shit in the right way. And the ruling metric is, is it cool? My favorite recordings from other artists all have that element of, whoa, that's so crazy, fucked up and cool. And in my own way, on sessions I play on, that's what I try to emulate. Hell, they have drum machines that can play perfectly. But drum machines don't have cool ideas, and they're limited in their ability to play the wrong shit in the right way. And let's face it, after all, I'm making something that for better or worse, will long outlive me. Somewhere in cyberspace at least. So why not make it special and unique? When I record albums, I like to look at the whole album as a movie, and each song is a pivotal scene in the movie. And since I'm the only instrument that isn't playing specific notes or melody per se, I'm creating textures and shade. So I look at my role in the movie as the lighting special effects guy. An action adventure scene, does it need flames and explosions? Or is it a period piece? Do I have to provide a specific feeling of a bygone era? At the end of the day, I feel the drums can provide the vibe and attitude for the melody. The drums can make the other instruments sound better by what the drummer is or isn't playing. Like Miles Davis once said, drummers are like boxers. They gotta know when to duck and get out of the way and know when to step in and clean up. And I'd like to share something a famous painter told me recently. She said, don't look at painting like you're making a product. Look at it like you're casting a spell. I fucking love that. It's a technique I try to use in everything I do. So this whole lifelong love started with that fateful night. As a lost kid, just looking up at the stars. And it's a perfect example of the you-never-know idea. So my message is, you never know. Anything can happen, and it often does. But before I end this episode, I'd like to acknowledge the drug use I mentioned. 
I'm happy to report I no longer use drugs or even drink. It's been over 21 years since I've been under the influence of anything that causes intoxication. And I love my sobriety. It has given me all the gifts that drugs had promised me, but was unable to deliver. Drugs and alcohol never actually improved anything other than the way I felt. But for a shy, anxious, awkward, frustrated, lost kid, they opened doors for me and allowed me to see myself and the world differently. And that is a gift. But for all the early gifts they gave me, they would end up taking these gifts away, leaving me with less than I had started with. I have no regrets or even moral judgments on what others do, but I am just so grateful to have survived it and have no desire to impair my sobriety. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I'd much prefer to actually be weird than to just feel weird. And the greatest gift of all that my sobriety has given me is the ability to show up, to show up for me, to show up for you, and to show up for the music. I'm in the showing up business, and business is good. Thanks for listening. Bye. My name is Matt.